Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For most of us in modern culture, we aren't sleeping as much as we need to. And really, there's sort of a modern day sleep deprivation going on. Sleep researchers know with absolute certainty that this is really detrimental to our health. So, Diane, I feel like we're doing our part a little bit today. There is a shift happening and it's known by athletes and and CEOs, which is sleep is essential. Actually, this old notion of working really hard means not sleeping. We want to turn that on its head. You are listening to Dr. Diana Hill and Dr. Debbie Sorensen on Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists and busy parents who love to talk about and explore the best ideas from psychology to use in our clinical work and in our own lives. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in compassionate, values-based approaches to living well. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University, specializing in evidence-based therapy for relationships. In this podcast, we explore how psychological principles can help improve your work, relationships, parenting, and health. We discuss the practices we use in the therapy room and bring you ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your own life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. So this is Debbie and Diana here, and we get to have an episode together. We haven't done this in a while with just the two of us, so I'm excited to chat with you today. Me too. It's, it's, it was fun to prep an episode together um, after doing a whole lot of interviews recently. So we have, we have a fun episode today. We are going to talk about how we spend actually a really good amount of our lives. And for many of us, we don't know what's happening when we're doing it, which is sleeping. And this is the first part of a two-part series. Today, we're going to talk about what is happening when you're snoozing and some tips on how to get a good night's sleep tonight. And then in the next episode, we're going to tackle children's sleep with Gabby Wentworth, and she's a sleep consultant and specialist. And if you're a parent, you know that your sleep is only as good as your kids sleep. So hopefully that'll help you all out as well. Yes. Yes, it's a helpful one. And as for today, um, we're talking really what we thought we'd do is just present a little nutshell version of some interesting things happening in sleep science. I've always been really interested in this topic. It's not, not something I've directly researched myself, but I remember as a graduate student at Harvard, we had some lectures by Dr. Robert Stickgold, who's a sleep researcher, and we're going to talk about some of his work today. And I remember it really well. It was all probably 20 years ago now, close to 20 years, um, but it just stuck with me. And then I just recently read a book called Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Dr. Matthew Walker out at Berkeley. He's at the Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab. A lot of what we're going to talk about today came from that book. It's really interesting, and it has definitely inspired me to prioritize sleep in my own life. And I just thought it would be fun to share some of the sleep science that I learned about in that book with our listeners. 
And as clinicians, I think both of us know how important sleep is. It it's, shows up a lot in treatment. I would say in the last 10 years as therapists, we're asking that question more and more of how are you sleeping? And that's definitely part of my intake. And that's actually a newer thing in uh, in psychology and clinicians that are asking about sleep. And it's because many mental health concerns, depression, PTSD, anxiety, often have a sleep component. And it's a two-way street where your mood can impact your sleep. We've all been stressed and then waking up in the middle of the night with our lists of things that we're worried about. And then on the other side, poor sleep can be detrimental to emotional well-being. So we've all had a bad night's sleep and then been snappy the next day or been in a bad mood. And in this episode, we'll hear about how getting enough sleep is really helpful, not only for your mental health, but also your physical health, our aging brains. Um, really, pretty much everything in our life is impacted by the quality of our sleep if we're not sleeping well. Yeah, and if you don't believe that yet, you will after you listen to this episode, for sure. Um, yeah, and we have a couple different things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about why humans and other animals need sleep. We're going to talk about some sleep deprivation studies and some really interesting research about sleep stages, sleep and memory, and dreaming. And then at the end, we have some habits um, to check in about and see. Maybe our listeners can check in and see how they're doing. So just a quick side note before we start. As I was reading... Um, Matthew Walker's book about the book Why We Sleep. I kept fall. It took me a really long time to get through the book because I kept falling asleep every time. It just sleep sounded so good. And uh, there's a picture of me prepping this episode on our website. If anyone wants to take a look, the show notes for today, you can see what typically happened when I attempted to prep this episode. I know you texted that to us. It was really cute of Debbie sleeping. So sweet. With the book right on top so of innocent. me. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, I think there's also important for us to make a note about insomnia. And as we're highlighting the importance of sleep, it actually can cause stress for people who have trouble sleeping. So we want to provide you with some hope before we get started that in, in sleep research, it actually turns out that many people who have insomnia actually sleep more than they realize. And that when you, you're brain really needs sleep, when your sleep demand gets really high and you have a high sleep drive, you're, you will fall asleep. So rest assured, you're not going to die of sleep deprivation if you have insomnia. And it also, there's some really helpful treatments out there, CBT for insomnia being one, which has a lot of good research behind it. It's as effective, if not more, actually more effective than any sleep medication in the long run. And if you're interested in CBT for insomnia and it's actually an act-based CBT for insomnia, check out our episode uh, with Dr. Alicia Bross. Uh, she has a wonderful book out there. It's episode seven that has a lot of strategies that you could use could be helpful. And if that doesn't work, obviously, you know, maybe seek out a mental health professional to help you, a, spe a specialist in insomnia treatment. So let's start with this question. Why do we sleep? We know that all animals sleep. Humans do. So do single-celled organisms all the way up to humans. And it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense on the surface because it's a time when we could be at risk for being attacked by a predator. We're not acquiring food. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So this has been a really... Uh, hard question to answer in the science, and it's sort of open. I don't think there's a solid answer to this question yet. It's really assumed, and, and there is some research to support this, that sleep periods are useful for our physiology. We need the restorative effect of sleep. It repairs damage that's done to our cells. 
in our nervous system and our bodies that's done while we're awake. And some researchers think it might also have something to do with body temperature or metabolism. And Matt Walker in his book also actually gives a nod to the idea that maybe sleep is our more like baseline state and kind of the first state of life and that wakefulness emerged from that. But what's really complicated about it is that there's not really a simple correlation between things like body size or type of animal or brain complexity and the quantity and quality of sleep. So basically, we're not quite sure exactly how all of that works, but we do know that rapid eye movement, REM sleep, which we'll talk about later, which happens while we're dreaming, seems to have come online later in evolution. So it's associated with more complex animals with more complex brains. And so we humans have a lot of REM sleep, and that's probably related to that. So it's sort of an, an interesting and open-ended question. And the one you know thing that we do know is that we, for most of us in modern culture, we aren't sleeping as much as we need to. And really, there's sort of a modern day sleep deprivation going on. The average American sleeps less than seven hours a night, and that's two hours less than 100 years ago. And what people are pointing to is indust in industrialized societies, really the culprit is the proliferation of light, television, computers, smartphones, and all this light is messing with our circadian rhythms. So research suggests that currently more than a third of people in industrialized societies sleep less than five to six hours per night during the work week. So if you think about yourself during the work week, are you doing that? Are you getting you know less than five or six hours and that's not enough for your system? How do you do, Debbie, with your sleep during the work week? Are you I'm working on it. I, uh -huh. It varies, but I would say in general, I'm under, I'm probably a little under where I should be. I think yeah. I have been making an effort on that. How about you, Diana? Um, it, it really depends on my stress level. Recently, I've been really not doing well with my sleep and it was so painful because I'm working on this episode and my sleep is like at the worst it's been in a long time and it's stressing me out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it really depends. I, for me, my sleep gets interrupted more by stress and a lot of uh, monkey mind at night and worrying up and worrying and making lists. That's, that's the culprit for my sleep. So, you know, we're not sleeping as much as we need to. And then what we're doing to try and deal with that is we're trying to cut corners. We're trying to use things like alcohol or sleeping aids, um, for some of us weed at night to fall asleep because we can't, we can't fall asleep. And then during the day, we're compensating by using coffee, amphetamines, things like that, like Red Bull, you know, to keep us up. And then it creates this, this vicious cycle, right? And then we can't fall asleep again at night because of the stimulants. And what we see is that these use of sleep aids is, is definitely on the rise, in particular with women and older adult, adults are using um, sleep aids even more. There's about $66 billion spent a year on sleep apnea devices, medications, sleep studies. We're tired and we're really desperate. And if you, you know, one way to know how tired you are is if you can fall asleep pretty instantly or if you're nodding off during the day, that's an indicator that you are uh, sleep deprived. And there's actually a term in Japan called inamuri, inamuri, which means napping while present. And I read this National Geographic article on sleep deprivation, and it has all these pictures of people in Japan sleeping on the train or sleeping during a meeting. And it's actually considered to be um, quite good if you're sleeping on the job, because it means that uh, you're working really hard, you're not getting enough sleep. And that's the frame of mind that we actually want to turn around in this episode, because there is a shift happening. 
and it's known by athletes and, and CEOs, which is sleep is essential. Actually, this old notion of working really hard means not sleeping. We want to turn that on its head. Yeah. And in Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker really emphasizes this. He talks about how sleep researchers know with absolute certainty that this is really detrimental to our health. And he's really on a mission to educate people about this and increase public health through looking at the importance of sleep, spreading the word. And he talks about things from the individual level all the way up to the societal level. So, Diane, I feel like we're doing our part a little bit today. Um, we're going to spend a few minutes now talking about some of the ways in which sleep is really beneficial. Basically, um, there are a number of functions of the brain that are restored by sleep, and different stages of sleep seem to be important for different parts of the brain. But really what we know is that your brain has to get enough sleep to get into these certain states and stay there long enough. So for I'll just run through a few examples, and then we'll talk a little bit about the stages later. Um, but sleep really helps with memory. This is very important. Um, sleep the night before we learn new material is important because it increases our ability to encode new memories by basically making room for new memories and new information in our hippocampus while we sleep. Sleep also helps us forget unimportant information. Um, and so it's kind of like decluttering your brain a little bit. Like we need to get some information that we don't need out of the way to make room for new information. It also helps us consolidate memories. Um, so sort of storing the important things and improves things like our ability to perform new skills. So for instance, if you're learning a new piece of music on the piano or if you're new, learning a new skill like skiing or playing Tetris, um, there's some studies showing that sometimes it almost feels like you're you're practicing it while you sleep a little bit. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, Diana, but sometimes when I've learned something new, I almost feel like I'm doing it all night. Well, that's something that's really important for learning. And, you know, what's interesting is when I was in college and graduate school, I always, always, always chose getting a good night's sleep over pulling an all-nighter. And I, I think I learned this in a psychology class that you do really well if you sleep after you learn new information. And so I made that commitment. I'm never going to pull an all-nighter in graduate school or in, or in college. And I think it really paid off because I, you know, I wouldn't show up bleary-eyed at, you know, 8 a.m. the next morning, but I'd have a good night's sleep. Yeah. Well, and I think research would support that decision that it's, yeah. you know, missing sleep is really going to be detrimental for you, probably worse than the amount you lost by not spending those extra hours study studying. Right. Sleep is also associated with a reduced risk of dementia. Um, what seems to happen is that our brains get kind of cleaned out while we sleep and a lack of sleep can cause amyloid to build up. And that is something that causes the plaques in the brain that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. It's really helpful in the long run with keeping your memory function working well too. Yeah, and sleep is also really important for the body. Inadequate sleep is associated with risk of cancer, heart disease, strokes. Um, it's associated with immune system health, type 2 diabetes risk. And relatedly, it's actually pretty well known that people who aren't getting enough sleep are prone to weight gain. Um, Dr. Eve Van Cotter at the University of Chicago did a series of studies about this where she would have people in different conditions where they either got four and a half hours of sleep or eight and a half hours of sleep. And then they would be just sitting in this room all day with like this buffet of food. And what she found is that people would just eat 
about 300 more calories if they were randomly assigned to the condition where they got less sleep. They're just, you know, your body wants to snack on junk food when you're tired. Can you relate to that, Diana? I sure can. Well, it reminds me of when I had little babies and I would be, I mean, I was breastfeeding too, so I was hungry, but I would be so hungry and I would go for like high carbohydrate stuff at night to almost keep myself going from the sleep deprivation. And I I don't know if it was actually hunger or just that, that need for sleep that I was getting confused. And there is some, you know, evidence that Sleep deprivation is associated with increased release of ghrelin, which is a hormone that really drives our hunger and specifically hunger for carbohydrates so that we eat more than we need. It also increases circulating endocannabinoids, which are very similar to the drug cannabis. And so, Debbie, you were saying it's like it gives you, gives you the munchies when you're when you're sleep deprived. It messes with your insulin levels. And so, if if you're having any of those types of problems, sometimes we think we need to get up earlier to exercise in the morning, but actually, sometimes we actually need to get more sleep to help us with our body weight and our body weight regulation and eating. Sleep is number, I would say, trumps exercise if you're sleep deprived. I think so, yeah. Another thing with sleep deprivation is that there's, um, in addition to you know all the things we've talked about, is that there's a safety issue. Things like drowsy driving when you're in the car and you're just behind on sleep. It can cause things like micro sleeps behind the wheel. I, I know that this has happened to me before. Luckily, I've, I've it's never caused a problem for me, but where your brain almost feels like it starts to want to nod off for a second, you have to kind of open the window or shake your head a little bit. Well, that can be really, really dangerous. Um, so it, if that happens, you should really go pull over and get off the road. But not only that, even if you don't have those little micro sleeps, if you're sleep deprived, it can slow down your reaction time. It can really affect your attention and alertness. And so we know that it's dangerous. So, you know, truck drivers who are trying to do a long haul really should not be on the road if they're not getting enough sleep. It's it's a safety risk for all of us. Um, it's also Poor sleep is related to anxiety and depression and mood and irritability. I think we can all probably relate to this when you just are low on sleep and you're just grouchier than usual. You're in a bad mood. So not only is it associated with mental health conditions, it's just, you know, it's hard to stay cheery when you're You're more likely when you're sleep deprived, you're more likely to interpret your partner, your partner's look first thing in the morning as negative and critical. So it also can impact relationships. I'm sure y'all would pipe in on that one yes, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You can miss it. Yeah. And if you don't care about all that, most importantly, Debbie, sleep is really impacts the way that whether we look more physically attractive in photographs. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, there's a study that showed that people, they had people either get a full night of sleep or, you know, five hours of sleep, and then they they randomly assigned them, and then they took their pictures at 2.30 p.m. the next day, and then they had blind, judges blind to the condition, rate their attractiveness level, and guess what? People who had some sleep were rated as more physically attractive. So there is we'll something... put a link to some of that. Yeah, yeah. We'll put a link to, to that of, of some before and afters. And I certainly notice that in my face in the morning if I haven't had a good night's sleep, I totally notice a difference. Yeah. My mom used to always say, "Go get your beauty sleep." She would say that to me, and I think that there is something to that. <laughs> it's a it, there's a little truth to it. So altogether, really, getting enough sleep is correlated with physical health, brain health, emotional health. You know, there's just no doubt in the research that it's really important. And if you're shortchanging yourself, you should take a look at that. Mm-hmm. 
So what happens to us if, you know, this sort of the normal sleep deprivation that we're all encountering, but what happens when people are like really, really, really sleep deprived? Is there some danger to that? Yeah. So there it's, there's so much danger to it. Listen to this. I think this is fascinating. The Guinness Book of World Records no longer has a category for longest sleep deprivation because people were pushing that to days and days and days. And it was, it's now considered too dangerous. Well, if you look at the Guinness Book of World Records, people do stunts all the time to get in that thing, like jump off really high things, go over waterfalls. I mean, how about like eating a million, you know, hot dogs? That's all fine. But you can't sleep deprive someone because it's that dangerous. It's been used as a form of torture. And Mm. Really, it's considered unethical. You know, they can do these studies still where they have people sleep four hours, five hours, maybe skip a night of sleep. But any sleep deprivation research going more than two days is considered unethical. That's how bad it is for us. But we do know from historic evidence, there was actually a review I found when I was looking at this that looked at 21 historical sleep deprivation studies before this became considered unethical, where they had people go between like one night without sleeping and 11 nights without sleeping. Can you imagine 11 nights? Mm -hmm. But average was about 72 to 90 some hours without sleep. What they found is that over time, people start to have these perceptual changes that get um, bigger and bigger over time. So they start as just minor little um, distortions, but they can end up with full on something that looks a lot like psychosis, hallucinations, delusions, and basically in all of our sensory modalities, people start to just, the world is no longer like based in reality anymore. Clearly, and obviously to anyone who's ever skipped a night of sleep, it will also include aggression, um, just some mood problems, anger, hostility, anxiety, depression. And what they found is that it took a while for people, for the most part, to get back to normal after doing these extreme sleep deprivation studies. They, it, one night of sleep often didn't wasn't enough to bring them back to normal. It took a while. It took days, even weeks. So it's really, you know, pretty bad for us. Did you ever, Diana, did you ever stay up a whole night before? I actually recently stayed up a whole night. I was at a conference and I don't know, something was off and I was, I think I was just anxious and I couldn't fall asleep. And it was an all night, it was an all night tossing and turning in bed. And what I was most worried about is how I was going to perform the next day, which was interesting as I actually could perform. Okay. The next day I was just sleepy, which is helpful for those CBT for insomnia folk. You can perform the next day, Mm -hmm. but it was more the experience of being up all night and the tossing and turning and checking the clock that was so painful. How about you, Debbie? Have you stayed up all night? Yeah, I mean, not very often, but I remember a time when I was in graduate school when I went out dancing with my friends the night before, which was a mistake because I had one of those, you know, 5 a.m. flights where you have to leave for the airport at three o'clock in the morning. And actually, I really was okay the next day, too. I think I felt a little I felt tired. But the worst part was that, you know, period of time from like 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. where I was waiting to go to the airport and my sleep drive was so high. It was like torture. It was really awful, but I was, yeah, Yeah. I mean, I bounced back. I was okay. Um, tired, but yeah, I was fine. Yeah. So those are all pretty extreme situations that we're talking about here today. So let's, let's kind of move more into the science on typical sleep. What, what do we know about what more normal range sleep is like, Diana? 
Yeah. Well, our sleep follows a really natural rhythm and it's connected to the cycle of the sun. So going back to evolution science again, it all nothing makes sense except for under evolution as we've heard. Uh, it follow we have a natural process that we undergo. And in 2017 there was actually a Nobel Prize awarded to three scientists who discovered that we have this molecular clock inside our cells that keep track of the sun. So it's built into our biology to go to bed at night and wake up in the morning. And when we're sleeping, we go through a series of an, four different stages of sleep that go through a 90 minute cycle. And this sleep cycle is the same pretty much for everyone. So in the first stage of sleep, we get sleepy and our pineal gland starts pumping out some melatonin, which is a signal for us to fall asleep, signaling it's nighttime. And we have sort of this brainwave frequency that slows. So scientists measure our brainwave through using an EEG. And what they do is they put electrodes actually like on your scalp while you're sleeping. And you can see pictures of people in sleep studies with these weird electrodes on their heads. I don't know how people do sleep studies, how they sleep in those environments, but somehow they do. So you get sleepy and this first stage of sleep lasts only about five minutes of the, of the 90 minutes. But it's that time when you feel kind of like you're daydreaming, you're kind of going in and out uh, of sleep. And then we move into a second stage, which actually has these really different, really change in our, in our electrical signals. We have these electric sparks that are deep in our brain and they're called spindles. And the reason why they're called sleep spindles is because it looks like a really quick kind of jagged line on the EEG, looks like a spindle and it's really high frequency cycles. And these spindles have, are kind of really important. They're theorized to, theorized to be involved in memory and infor, information consolidation. So it's the time when we take memories from our um, hippocampus and in, there's a connection that goes from our hippocampus to our neocortex. And that's where the memories are being stored into longer term memories. So when we're learning new information, people see an increased frequency of these sleep spindles. When you're learning something new, you produce more sleep spindles at night. And when children are maturing, they have more sleep spindles. And it's sort of starting to look at it as, as the physiological uh, measurement of, of intelligence and learning that's happening at night. So this is why part of the reason they say before you, you know, to sleep on something, because you wake up in the morning feeling a little bit refreshed or maybe you have a different perspective on things when you've gone through sleep. So we spend about half of our sleep time in this stage two. So it's a really important stage. Uh, what's, what's also interesting is that this is also because, because memory is such an important part of this stage. Some people actually suggest, like Gina Poe at UCLA suggests that when uh, people experience a traumatic event, one of the ways that they can actually help with PTSD treatment is to actually sleep deprive them to prevent the traumatic memory from being stored into your long term memory at this time. So it's kind of interesting how they're they're playing with that. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive, but I could see mm -hmm. how there's potential like you don't want to remember that. So let's not let you sleep on it. Right. So if you want to remember something, sleep on it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So the next stage is, uh, and it's actually kind of two stages put together, which are stages three and four. And this stage, we enter almost like a coma-like. This is a really deep sleep. And if you've ever used a sleep app like Sleep Cycle, where it measures and kind of gives you a measurement of your stages of sleep based on your movements in bed, you'll see that kind of early in the night, you do this deep dive into motionlessness. And that's when we're in stage three. It has what's called delta waves, uh, which 
are these slow, big waves in, in our EEG. And during this time is when our cells release our growth hormone. It's also when our immune system is maintained. And then this is when the glymphatic system comes in. So during this stage, our cells actually deflate by about 60% to make some more space between them. And then we have, it's like a dishwasher where we have this glymphatic, this fluid, cerebrospinal fluid that moves through in between our cells and washes out all your, all your cellular waste. So it's much like the cycles of a dishwasher and you don't want to open your dishwasher midway. And we've all had that experience of waking up like a kid crying from deep sleep or a alarm going off in the morning. It's painful mm -hmm. when that happens. You feel groggy and ugh. it's so, so disorienting. Yeah. 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 So this is a really important stage. Our bodies are at complete rest and our mental activity is really minimal. And this is when we're doing our mental housekeeping. It lasts about 30 minutes. And then we move in to, um, to our last stage, which is REM or REM, which stands for rapid eye movement. It was discovered in the fifties and we all know about the sort of darting of eyes that happens, but some other really odd things happen during REM. So we have engorgement of our sexual organs. Our bodies get really cold and then we're immobilized. Our breathing gets irregular and our heart rate starts to increase. And then we have this vivid dreaming, which is almost like in, in a brain sense, similar to being in a psychotic state. You feel like you can feel like you're moving when you're not moving. You can feel you can see things that aren't there. And according to Stickhold at Harvard, dreaming is an evolved state that actually involve looking for a larger significance of memories and how they may be useful in the future. So we spend about two hours a night total in 20 minute cycles in REM. And this is actually in contrast to infants, which spend most of the half of their time in REM and fetuses, which spend almost all their time sleeping in REM. So given this, scientists think that REM is a time when we're kind of testing out our software. We're kind of preparing us to come online. It's also a time when our limbic system is really active. So we have a lot of emotion during this stage. And this is why dreams often feel quite emotional and or sexual at times. So another question that researchers have looked at is whether dreams themselves the actual dream, the content of the dream serves any sort of purpose. It's been proposed that maybe dreams are just a byproduct of REM sleep. That doesn't seem to be the case. It has also been proposed that maybe it's a way of replaying what's happened throughout your day. And there's really research showing that that's not the case either. We don't just sort of go through our day piece by piece as we're sleeping at night. That's not the case either. But there is a strong emotional content related to sometimes to what we experience while we're awake. So our emotional concerns might be showing up in some way. We also know that there are two really important functions that that these the REM state of dreaming has. One is related to our mental and mental health and our emotional health. So interesting, the stress hormone norepinephrine completely shuts off when we're dreaming. So it's pretty much the only time that we're completely free of it. And Matthew Walker calls it calls this state of sleep a nocturnal soothing balm because it's a time that we can just have upsetting experiences sort of happen in a, just a really calm, safe dreaming environment. So has this ever happened to you where you're upset about something during the day, you go to sleep, and then you wake up the next morning, it seems like it's just not bothering you as much anymore, or somehow your emotional state has shifted around 
the thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. All the time. All so the that's time. a really important thing that happens. And what we know sometimes is that people who don't sleep well and who don't spend enough time in that state, maybe they're really stressed out or maybe they're having some sort of, you know, reason why their sleep is impacted that isn't happening quite as much. So they're not getting as much recovery while they sleep. And it also seems to impact our ability to read the emotions of other people. So we might be more attuned to a fear bias, like assuming that a friendly face was threatening in some way. We're just less accurate in how we navigate the social and emotional world around us. So it's really important for that. And it's also really important for creativity. Dreaming really helps creative thinking and problem solving, coming up with new solutions to problems. And a couple of ideas that we all know and, and love came from the dreaming state. So a couple of examples, Paul McCartney wrote songs in his sleep. Keith Richards wrote base, the basic music to satisfaction in his sleep. And he woke up the next morning and found it on a recorder. Um, Mary Shelley dreamed the idea for Frankenstein, the book. And there have been a lot of really important scientific theories that have come from people while they were sleeping. I even heard that I even heard that Google came from a dream as well. Oh, but, yeah. I didn't know so, that. I yeah. That. Yeah. A lot of big ideas have come from that. And what what they suspect is happening is that during the day, we can just be kind of locked into a like a narrow sort of logical mode in our thinking patterns. But while we're dreaming, it sort of loosens us up and it can get us into these less obvious connections and ideas. And it can just happen to like an abstract knowledge and big picture ideas and connections that we don't normally have the ability to access during the day because we're paying attention to what's right in front of us. So Debbie, I think a question that comes up a lot for me in my practice is the significance of dreams and whether when people have a dream, it means anything. And I know that there's different perspectives on this. What are, What is your perspective? Well, I honestly, when someone, a client asks me to interpret a dream, I honestly am a little stumped. I'm a slightly skeptical that they have much meaning and so I might notice just an emotional theme or something like that, or sometimes something really obvious, like, oh, you're mad at your mother or something like that. But I really actually try to steer clear of it a bit in my practice because I feel like I don't really, I'm a skeptic a little bit, and I also don't really know how to do it. What about you, Diana? Well, I find it actually really fun to explore people's dreams and not because I know like if you're in a chair, what that means, or if you're flying, what that means, but because I also see it as a frame and it sort of makes me think about your upcoming episode with Matthew Willette that will be coming up where how our language frames things and shapes things. So we can use the dream interpretation of clients talking about their dream as a way of maybe looking at their perspective on some of their problems. And it can al almost be like a perspective taking exercise in the same way of doing like a projective. I'm not trained in projectives and, but I, projectives being something like a, um, an ink blot and people interpret what that means to them. But in doing that, it can open up some, in looking at dreams, it can look at, open up how people are interpreting their own experience. And so I think, I think it can be useful sometimes. Yeah. And People may not be familiar with the old school kind of Freudian 
belief around dreams, which was that they are representative of unfulfilled unconscious wishes. And that's really been a stance for a long time in psychodynamic therapy. And it's an interesting question because it's really pretty much impossible to either prove or disprove this. Um, what has been noted is that if you do a study of psychoanalysts and you give them all the same dream, there's not a lot of consistency in how they interpret it. So there's not like one right or wrong way to interpret a dream. There's a lot of debate around this. But yeah, I mean, most of the time it probably can't hurt and it might give people a little interesting glimpse. I, I feel like I'm probably not good at doing it, but who knows? Sometimes sometimes dreams can have a lot of emotional content for people. So for example, if someone has somebody that's passed away and they have an experience of seeing that person in their dream and something that their their experience of that can be a really important thing to explore in therapy. And I know I've had that for myself that there's certain dreams in my life that have been really powerful and emotionally uh, impactful. And, and so I think it can be helpful to share that with somebody and connect with somebody around what's happened for you in the night. Absolutely. There can be some yeah. benefit just to that process of sharing it. Yeah. Now we're going to give you some tips for our listeners to get some good sleep. These tips are based on some suggestions from what we've both read from our clinical work and training in evidence-based practices for insomnia. If you're struggling with sleep, we really recommend that you stick these things out and try these changes for a couple of weeks, not just one time and say, oh, that didn't work. And many of these things are probably ideas that you've heard before, but just ask yourself, am I actually doing them? Because I know for myself, I know every single thing on this list, and yet I don't always do them, and I do think that they help. Yes, there's certainly areas improvement for all of us, and there's a number of one of them, a number of them that I want to be doing more of. So maybe we can even mention that <laughs> as we're talking about some of these. Okay. So the, the first step is really about conditioning your mind for sleep. And what we mean by that is using some of the psychological principles of classical condi conditioning to help you sleep. So your mind takes in all the information cues from your environment as a preparation for sleep. So therefore, you really need to use your sleep environment only for sleep. That means using your bed only for sleep and sex, not lying in your bed and watching TV, not, you know, eating in bed, things like that. But you want your brain to start pairing your bed with being asleep. And if you're lying in bed awake at night for more than 15 minutes or so, get up out of your bed, go into another environment with low light and do something relaxing until you feel sleepy. I did that a couple of nights ago. It worked like a charm because it gets you out of your environment, gets you sleepy, kind of gives you a little bit of a reset to go back into the bed and try again. And that's a lot better than spending a lot of hours. We've all had that tossing and turning, looking at the clock all night that is, is really unhelpful. Yeah, does not help at all. Another strategy is to really be consistent about setting a regular sleep and wake time and sticking to it, even on weekends. Um, really, our brains benefit from consistency and from getting into a really good daily rhythm with our sleep. Of course, you want to aim for about eight hours of sleep opportunity. That's what is recommended by the World Health Organization and the National Sleep Foundation. I, Diana, I struggle with this. I would say within the past week, I've gone to bed between, I try for 10.30 to 11, but I've gone to bed at 9, and I've gone to bed at midnight within the last week. Oh, wow. 
And I do usually wake up around the same time, but I'm really, I set an alarm for myself now as a reminder. I'd say I'm getting better at it, but this is a really important thing, especially the waking up in the morning part. If you're all over the place with your wake up time, it really does not help you get into a good groove. Oftentimes when I'm working with clients that have, that I want to get them on a regular sleep-wake schedule, I start with the wake-up time as the initiator for setting that up because it also sets up the sleep demand. So if they want to wake up at six, I just start them on waking up at six and then you'll get tired you know, earlier as well. I've heard sleep experts say that that is the most important thing is a consistent wake-up time. If you get up at the same time roughly every morning, that's that helps the most with your sleep. So what yeah. about you? I do pretty well with that one, but I don't do as well with the next one, which is get really limiting. Number three, limit your artificial light, especially blue light LEDs at night. And I would say also increase your daytime exposure to outdoor light. So here's the reason why. And we've, I think we've, a lot of us have heard about this, but we all know about rods and cones. We learned about that in bio. Remember rods and cones? Oh, yeah, in your eyeballs. Little cells in your eyes to see color. Yeah. And there's also another type of cell in your eye, which we probably didn't learn about. And thank goodness, because I wouldn't have gotten it right. It's called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And what these cells are is they're designed to detect light. And they actually play a key role in setting our circadian rhythm. And they're particularly sensitive to blue light. So there's a lot of blue light in our natural daylight. And when it hits these cells, um, blue light is also what you see when you're kind of driving by. It's late at night and you're driving by houses and you see that blue glow coming from their living room (laughs) from the TV screen, right? We don't see it when we're in front of it, but it's definitely there. Mm -hmm. And it sends information to your brain that it's time to wake up. It actually sends information to your pineal gland to reduce melatonin and it suppresses melatonin. In a national, the National Geographic article on sleep that I read, they reported that, that sort of that there's different, these different types of light when they hit your retina have a different impact on your sleep delay. So having something like a candle at night impacts your sleep delay zero minutes. It's primi- primarily red light. But as you go on to something like an incandescent light bulb, 55 minute sleep delay, a smartphone, 67 minute sleep delay, and a tablet, 96 minutes of sleep delay. And so we need to get our kids off of iPads before bed and ourselves off of our, our phones before bed. And one of the things um, that we also, that we've been working on this in our household is we got rid of our LED book lights. Our kids were reading by those and we were reading by those at night. And if you look at them, they're primarily blue light. We replaced them with a Somni night light. We also uh, put uh, salt lamps in the room so that we were turning on salt lamps, which has a primarily red light instead of turning on an incandescent light if we need to at night. And the new iOS 12, which just came out, uh, also helps you have something called downtime. So we all have the, you know, on our phone that can turn down the light. But we also have, there's also this new feature called downtime on your phone, which actually helps monitor the amount of time, the times that you're using your phone. So what will happen is say you want to turn off your phone at eight o'clock at night and not, not be able to access it. When you go in, if you try and go into your phone between like eight and 6am, it, all your apps will be kind of dimmed and you can't get them to go. It'll remind you not to do it. So using some of those tools may be helpful. People do all sorts of things like they wear those orange goggles and, you know, protect their eyes. But I actually think orange goggles aren't going to solve this problem. What we need to do is get away from screens about an hour before bed 
and put them in put them in another room, which you're actually going to talk about as well. Yeah, that that's our next suggestion is really keeping screens out of the bedroom. No TV in the the room is really important, as well as things like smartphones, tablets, laptops. Not just because of the light, which I think is really important, but also they're mentally sort of stimulating content. You get kind of sucked into it, but it's passive. I a lot of the clients I see in my therapy client have a TV in their bedroom and they fall asleep with a TV on. And then if they wake up in the night, they watch TV. And some people believe that this helps them sleep better. But really, it does not. You should not have a TV in your bedroom at all. Um, You also should just do try to do what I do, I think. And I don't always do this, but most of the time I've really started the habit of charging my phone down in the kitchen. So there's no screen that I have access to. I have an old fashioned alarm clock. It just avoids the temptation. And definitely, if you wake up in the middle of the night and can't sleep, do not succumb to the temptation to pull out your phone. And that's why it's so helpful to have it in another room. And Debbie, I was inspired by that because, as you know, we're remodeling our kitchen. And one of the things that we put in our kitchen is a drawer that pulls out with a plug at the back. So we can plug in all our devices and shut them in the drawer before bed and then go into the room. And part of this is thinking about down the road when my kids have phones, what am I going to want them to do with their phones at night? And I better start doing that now. So this is something that's like a major goal of mine to get my phone (laughs) out of the picture early on. It's a good habit to start. And I think starting it now will help your kids. Yeah, absolutely. So number five is start a soothing bedtime ritual about half an hour before your desired bedtime. Start winding down and especially you'll be off your phone. So you have some other options that you could use, like reading a book, um, just even washing your face, brushing your teeth, doing all those things. But thinking about other calm, calm things that soothe you at night. One of the things that I really like doing is when I'm reading kids at night, putting doing like a yoga pose, like legs up the wall or other, you know, kind of gentle stretching. And that sort of starts to wind down, down my body. What, what do you like to do, Debbie, before bed? I really read. I do my, you know, teeth brushing and face washing and get in bed with a book. And I just yeah. read until I start to feel sleepy and then I turn off the light and I go to sleep. Great. I've always read myself to sleep pretty much my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. The next tip that we have is to avoid caffeine, nicotine, any kind of stimulating medication in the evening, but also in the afternoon. Caffeine can stay in your system for up to eight hours. So if you're tired in the afternoon, I always get a little slump around two or three. Really, caffeine is not a good idea. Um, it stays mm-hmm. in your body. So just skip it instead or, or go to something that's less caffeinated late in the day. Also, it's really important to avoid eating a large meal too close to bedtime. You you sleep better if you're not digesting your food. So you don't want to be necessarily hungry at night when you're trying to sleep, but you also don't want to be really, really full. Yeah. Number eight is keep the temperature of your room cool. And Debbie, you add in wear socks to bed, which I think is a controversy around. I don't like socks on my feet when I'm sleeping, but there is, are some benefits. So Sleep is organized around temperature, not just light. And as we go to bed, as the night goes on, it gets cooler and cooler. And the sleep cycle has to do with this with this cooling that happens. The temperature needs to decrease by about two degrees Fahrenheit in order to initiate sleep. Some people say it needs to be ideally around 68 degrees. And once the body temperature dips at night, it signals the brain to feel sleepy. This is one of the reasons why taking a bath can be helpful because it actually getting out of the bathtub lowers lowers your temperature. 
The reason why they say you should be wearing socks to bed is that your hands and feet can radiate heat and help drop your core body temperature. So warming your hands and feet selectively can actually help you fall. You can help you fall asleep. What do you think about this, Debbie? So I am just like you. I hate wearing socks to bed. It makes me feel yeah. like panicky. I'm not even kidding. Oh, wow. But I've I've tried it this week, Diana. I did an experiment. Did? Yeah, because I was I did it. We've had a little bit of a cold spell. Is starting to feel like fall here in Denver. And so I was like, I'm going to try it and see what happens. It did. It bothers me. But I, I don't know. It's hard to say how much it really impacted my sleep. But once I was in bed, it actually felt kind of cozy. And I got used to it. I think I did it three nights in a row. And it did bother me less on the third night. I don't know. End of one. It's always hot here in Santa Barbara. It never goes below 60 degrees, yeah. 60 degrees. So that our, our problem is we can't get our, our room cool enough. But I did hear Kelly Wilson, who's obsessed with sleep and all things health, as we're going to have him on in a future episode. But he actually has a thermostat in his house that turns down the temperature over the course of the night. So people can get really into this temperature thing as well. But Best of all, just keep your room cool, open a window, and uh, and that will be helpful. Okay. Another tip is if you have trouble sleeping at night, you really want to avoid napping during the day. Sometimes people who are tired and lacking sleep will doze off or take a nap, only to find that then they're not tired at night. So it's really unpleasant to do this, but you want to just stay awake until your desired bedtime, and then your sleep your sleep drive will be so high that you won't be able to resist succumbing to sleep. So if you're, if you really are struggling with sleep, just make sure that you're not napping. Also, as you're going to put a curfew on your caffeine use, number nine, put a curfew on your alcohol use before bed. So alcohol will help you relax, may help you fall asleep, but it has this problem associated with it it wears off and then you are likely to wake up in the middle of the night and have a hard time falling back asleep. Alcohol can also interfere with REM sleep. And it's very common in my practice when people say they're having a problem with middle of the night awakening and I go back and say, what are you doing before bed? And they're saying, I'm having three glasses of wine before bed. That may be the key linchpin in causing the middle of the night awakening. So if you're going to have some drinks, it's probably better to do it earlier in the night, like around happy hour time, as opposed to right before bed. Yeah, I found that to be the case. If I have a couple drinks, I definitely, my sleep is very disruptive, yeah. disrupted, and I wake up feeling pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, our final tip is it's really helpful if you can get some physical activity during the day, some exercise, or even just going for a walk. That really helps your body sleep and feel tired. You don't want to do that too close to bedtime, though, because you need your t body some time to just unwind and calm down and settle down. Great. So we'll list these 10 tips, 1 through 10, on uh, our show notes so you can review 1 through 10 and see how well you're doing in each area. And we really hope that this episode was helpful for you in understanding more about your own body, what's happening to your body at night, and then how to support yourself in getting a better night's sleep. Yes. And don't forget to take take a listen to our next episode, which is an interview with a child sleep expert. There's more on the topic of sleep related to kids sleep and also some really helpful strategies for trying to help your kids get some rest. Great. OK, so sleep, sweet. sleep well, everyone. We hope you have yeah. a good night. Sweet dreams. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook and Twitter. Music by John Gu and Susie Stevens, and special thanks to our creative producer, Dr. Meg McKelvey. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our website. Our website is offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com.